Mark chapter 13. I had intended to preach this message last Lord's Day. Uh, and I can tell you that something happened last Lord's Day that has not happened to me in 20 years, maybe, of ministry. And that's that as I stood up here to preach that message, I just simply couldn't do it. I've never had that happen before. Uh, I just felt like the Lord was saying, don't shut up and sit down. So I shut up and sat down. And so made this week a little easier. I didn't have to study this week, at least not this message, because it was already prepared. But um, I just found that very interesting. Mark chapter 13, I want to speak to you for a few moments this morning on things to remember as the end approaches. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. For whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if someone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch had already become tender, And puts forth leaves, you know the summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near. At the doors, 
Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest... Coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Speak to our hearts today, we pray. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me for any sin that might hinder my usefulness today. And just fill me with your spirit that I might preach. Help me to be clear and accurate and practical. Help me to say whatever needs to be said and protect me from saying anything I ought not. And just use this time. Father, I pray for each person that's hearing today that they would be filled with the Spirit they might hear. That they would be receptive. That they would listen to what you have for them today. And not just listen to it, but act upon it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in Mark for a while now. And, of course, they've been hanging around in the temple for a little bit uh, in the previous messages that we've looked at in the previous chapters. And now they're leaving the temple. And there in verse number 1, we see that the disciples are bragging on the temple. They're proud of the magnificence of this glorious edifice. And and, and I would say rightly so. Uh, When we were in Israel one time, I don't know, Connie may remember this. I I don't know if she would remember this or not. I can't remember if we went there. Who else? Judy, Karen, maybe. Uh, There's a presentation that we've seen a couple of different times where they take you down. You're actually under the temple mount. And they uh, have this little room set up there where they show you the history of that area. And they have this really cool model. Do you remember that model? Yeah, you probably didn't. You, yeah, maybe, maybe we couldn't get your wheelchair down there. I don't remember. But, uh, and we might not have gone there then either. I don't remember. But um, anyway, this model, it was like a transformer type model. It, they, they had this model of the, of the Temple Mount. And then he would push a button. And it would change. And it would have a different period of history, and then he'd push a button, and it would change again, and buildings would appear, and the mountain would change. The thing that I remember the most about that model was when he pushed the button, and the temple came up on there, and then he pushed the button, and the temple was gone, and the next major thing was the Dome of the Rock, which stands there today, and is this magnificent edifice in and of itself, that Islamic shrine, you look at that, and it's fantastic, but then you see how much bigger... The temple was. It was like twice the size. It was a humongous thing. You would have been able to see it for miles and miles and miles away. And so I think about that every time I read a passage like this one. They're saying, look how great this building is. And uh, it was. It was fantastic. And uh, they were rightly proud of it. But I think it's interesting that Jesus replied that absolutely every bit of it would be destroyed. Every bit of it. Not a stone will be left. And the disciples had to have been somewhat taken aback by that. They had to have been shocked and dismayed. What? The temple is going to be completely destroyed. And, of course, history tells us that it was. It's not there now. And the remainder of chapter 13 is his answering their question, which arose from that, which was, well, when is that going to happen? When will these things be? And what will be the signs uh, of your coming? The section here in chapter 13 is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse, because it took place on the Mount of Olives. 
They walked right across, and those who have been to Israel with us can picture this perfectly because you stand at the, at the edge of where the temple would have been, and you're looking right at the Mount of Olives. They walked across the valley, and uh, that's where they were sitting when he had this conversation, and uh, therefore it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's also discussed in Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke chapter 21. It was Jesus answering the question, when will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming? Now, there are a couple of ways we could study the passage. We could look at it prophetically. And, of course, that probably is the most likely, uh, obvious way that people would look at it. We could dig into the various signs that Jesus listed here, uh, which are signs of his coming. He listed several signs that we ought to be on the lookout for, signals that the end is near. I think the most important one is in verse number 10. Verse number 10, we've got to circle that in our Bibles. The gospel must first be preached all the nations. Jesus said, until that happens, the end cannot come. The gospel must first be preached. Another sign uh, that he said would be uh, uh, absolute is in verse number 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. And then, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He was referring there to the Antichrist. And of course, if you really want to discuss this in any great detail, you've got to talk to Brother Carl there and you've got to attend his class because he's talking about these very things. But uh, Jesus was referring to the Antichrist, the world leader who will desecrate the temple during the tribulation time. He said, when you see that, the end is near. It's very near. He mentioned some heavenly signs in verses 24 and 25 that he said would take place uh, immediately preceding his return in power and great glory when he himself would come in the clouds with us in verse number 26. He said these things are definite signs of the end. He also listed some other things here that were really not signs of his return. Often I think we read this passage somewhat erroneously and we think that everything he said here is a definite sign. But some of these things he said uh, were not really signs. Some of these things he said were the beginnings of sorrows or birth pangs. Uh, these are things that have always occurred on the earth and will continue until he comes. I think the implication is that they'll come a little bit more frequently. They might be speeding up a little bit as we come to the end. But they've always been with us, and they'll always be with us. But uh, there will be more. There will be more false Christs, verses 5 and 6. There will be increasing conflict between nations, verses 7 and 8. There will be more natural disturbances, verse number 8. There will be more persecution of Christians, verses 9 through 13. And by the way, those who are concerned with the alarmist stuff we're told all the time about global warming, you need to meditate on verse number 8 a little bit. Jesus predicted it. It's not anything for us to take an alarm over. It's, it's something that we ought to be looking up as a result of. Because as it speeds up, as it happens more and more, it's a reminder if back then it seemed so real. And I just can't help but feel how much closer it's coming is today. Well, we could dig a lot deeper into the prophetic aspects of this. There's an awful lot there. And again, I would direct you to Brother Carl's class if you're interested in that sort of thing. But there's another way that we could look at this. It's the way I'd like to look at it this morning, and that is practically. Assuming that the prophecies of the Bible will occur just as Jesus said they would. And will they? Amen. They will, exactly as he said. What effect should it have on us? What impact should it have on our lives? Should our priorities be defined by it? Should it drive how we spend our time? How we invest our money, should it show up in what we talk about? Should it affect us in some way? 
Studying the minutiae of eschatology might be interesting to some, and it might be of, of value to some. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things. There's value in that, but it ought to result in some application. For me to have a great knowledge of everything that's going to happen in the end times has value only if it drives me to some practical use. And I think that's Jesus' whole point here. He sums it all up in the end with giving us some very practical instruction. I think he's telling us four things to remember as we uh, approach the end. And they're all very, very practical. And so let's notice, let's concentrate the rest of our time and how he summed it up at the very end of the passage, verses 34 and following, in this parable that he told. And we'll notice those four things. The first thing he mentions there is in verse number 34. He said, it is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants. The first thing we need to remember as the end approaches is the authority that he has given to his servants. Earlier, Mark had recorded a conversation between Jesus and the, uh, the, the, his detractors and, and the scribes and the Pharisees. It was back in chapter 11 and verse number 27. It says that then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, Why, what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? His enemies wanted to know uh, how he claimed to have the authority to do and say the things he did. And, of course, the Scripture is clear, and we talked about it when we were in Mark chapter 11, that Jesus does indeed have all of that authority. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. John chapter 5, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. I think in verse number 34, when Jesus is talking about the man who is going to a far country, he's referring to himself. He's referring to Christ. I think that's obvious. And the authority that that was granted to the servants uh, is authority that he's granting to us. Only the one who has authority can grant authority, and Jesus Christ is the one who grants authority. You and me. It was his disciples. It was you and me. It's everyone who makes up, all Christians who make up his church. So think about what that means. That means, brothers and sisters, that when you speak for Christ, you have the authority of Almighty God behind you when you do that. When you live for Jesus Christ, you have the authority behind everything you do. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those words were his commission to us. He had the authority. He granted it to us. We can and should be witnessing. We should be making disciples with all confidence that the one who has all authority has bestowed it upon us to be about that business that the world might be reached for Christ. Now, I think implied here, and I can't be too sure about this, but I think it's implied here in verse number 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I think it's implied there that the specific source of our authority as we go about preaching and teaching the word of God is his word. I think it's the word that he's talking about there. We're not given authority to share our opinions. The authority granted to us is not personal. Uh, I can't stand before anybody and say my way or the highway. Some might. I can't do that. But I can say And so can you, thus saith the Lord. We have the authority to do that. We can speak the words contained in the book with authority. You have in your hands the almighty power of God. 
You have the authority of God. We ought to hold those Bibles high. You can tell somebody else, regardless of what culture would tell you, and regardless of what this world would tell you, you can tell somebody else that there is only one way to heaven because you have the authority of Almighty God in his word to do that. The Bible gives you that. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, Behold, you speak this word. Because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 14. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews four twelve. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, Romans one sixteen. So one thing for us to remember as the end approaches is that he has granted us, his church, his people, authority. You and I have everything that we need while we're waiting for the end, uh, to, for his return, for the end to come. And so what should occupy a prominent place in our lives? What should we be focusing on? What, what should be the thing uh, that we are concentrating on as we await the Lord's return? Well, I think it's God's Word, understanding God's Word, loving God's Word, reading God's Word, filling our minds and our lives with God's Word. The closer we get to the end, the more we ought to be focusing on this glorious source of our authority. Well, the second thing that he's, he gives us here that I think we need to remember as the end approaches. Also in verse number 34, it's like a man going to a far country who left his house, gave authority to his servants and to each his work. The authority is seen there. Also the task, the task to each his work. We've already kind of alluded to, I think, or maybe even mentioned it directly, that the work that he's assigned to us, we're to go and we're to make disciples. That's mentioned in the, in the Great Commission Verse. It's our, it's our uh, mission statement here as a church. We're to do it everywhere, and we're to do it until Jesus comes. It's a task. It's a responsibility of pastors. It's a responsibility of elders. It's a responsibility of deacons. It's a responsibility of deaconesses, Sunday school teachers, junior church workers, uh, everybody, fathers, mothers, teenagers, children, boys, girls. That is the task. That's the thing that we are supposed to be accomplishing. The responsibility of everyone. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. That verse tells me that some of us have particular roles to teach and preach, and to equip others, but that the work of the ministry is the responsibility of all of us. It's all of our tasks. All of our tasks. I have a task to accomplish as the end approaches. You have the exact same task. Everybody in the room. Some would say that lack of completing that task is what holds up the return of Jesus Christ. I think verse 10 is one that you ought to, uh, you ought to uh, circle in your Bible. Because it uh, tells us that. Matthew 24 expands on it a little bit. It says that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. He adds a little bit there. 
I often wonder what it would be like to win the last person to Christ. You ever think about that? What would it be like? Somebody's going to do that. Somebody is going to be witnessing to somebody someday. And it's going to be the last person that's ever going to trust Christ in this church age. Imagine that. Imagine you're sharing the gospel with somebody. And then, as sometimes gloriously happens, they say, yeah, I want to trust Christ. I want to believe. I want to be saved. And they bow their heads and they pray. And as they're praying, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, I know I need to be saved. Tears streaming down their face. Tears streaming down your face. And you're listening to them pray. And all of a sudden, you're not hearing them pray anymore. What you're hearing is the most beautiful sound of a trumpet that you've ever heard in your life. Can you imagine that? And then all of a sudden, you're, you open your eyes and you look at this person's eyes and you're both looking eyeballs this big as you're both rising through the air. Can you imagine what that's going to be? Somebody is going to do that. And the Bible says that it cannot happen until the gospel has been proclaimed everywhere. Think of it in the opposite way. What would it be like if that person that, uh, that you ought to be witnessing to is the last one and you don't do it? Is it not possible, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but is it not possible that we then are delaying the return of Jesus Christ? I think that's what's implied in verse number 10. Maybe not even implied, maybe said very, very plainly. That's why I think we need to preach or to circle that every, uh, every one of our Bibles. The gospel must be preached before the end will come. Must, must circle that word. Making disciples is the business of the church. Making disciples is the most Important business of the church. Making disciples is the business of every member of the church. Our task is international. Our task is local. We are to do it everywhere. And so as the end approaches, I think Jesus reminds us here, he has given us our work, and we need to stay on task. Third thing I want you to notice, also in verse number 34, it is like a man going to a far country who left his house, gave authority to his servants and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Third thing I see here is a warning. A warning. Four times in this chapter, Jesus warned us to watch, to be on our guard. First is in verse number five. Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. Then we see in verse number nine, watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Verse number 23, but take heed. Same same word, same thought. Watch, take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. And then finally, verse 33, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. He warned us. He warned us to keep watch against deceivers. In other words, Christians, bury yourselves in the book until he comes. Let no deceptive words, let no deceptive people lead you astray. We're to be vigilant. We're to be on guard against deception and against error. He warned us about persecution. He said to expect it, to be ready for it, and to use it as a means to witness even more. That's how the Apostle Paul handled persecution. How would you like to have been a Roman soldier tied to the Apostle Paul? I think it would have been amazing. What's the first thing he's going to tell him? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. That's the first thing he would have said, even though he was being persecuted. He warned us to watch out for persecution. He warned us a second time, I think lending emphasis by the repetition, to beware of false and deceptive teachers and teaching and comparing everything to what he's already told us, verses 22 and 23. I like that little addition he put in there. I've already told you beforehand. I think that's pretty good. After my uh, wife Beth died, one of the pastors in the area sent me a little note. And I've never forgotten what he said, uh, and, and I'm reminded of it right here. 
He said to me, never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. What great advice. What we know to be true. When those would come along and try to deceive us, or darkness would try to swallow us up, or whatever else would try to draw us away from it, Jesus said, I have already told you before. Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. He has given us his word, and we need not fear or heed those who would teach and say something different. And he warned us also here just to watch and to pray and to be ready because we don't know the time. It could be today. It could be any minute. He warned us to be constantly and unceasingly ready. Some people put off trusting Christ as their Savior. Perhaps you've spoken with some people about the Lord and they've said something like, you know, I've got a lot of living to do. I'll worry about that when I get a little bit older. Some people put it off. Of course, as one person said, those who uh, expect to uh, trust Christ at the 11th hour often die at 10.30. And it's true. Some put it off. Some of the saddest words in the Bible were written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Jeremiah 8.20, he said, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Jesus said, You don't know when. Don't know when. Be ready. And I don't think it's just the lost that need to heed that warning. I think we Christians do too. I think we all need a mindset that matches Jesus' mindset. When he said in John chapter 9, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Oh, I'll serve in the church one of these days, uh, preacher. I've got some other things I've got to take care of right now. You don't know when he's coming. You don't know when he's coming. I'll help in our audio-visual ministry that we've been asking for help for for a year. Uh, I'll help in there one of these days. You don't know when he's coming. There may not be a tomorrow. So it's a, it's a warning to all of us. What would be the ramification of Jesus returning and finding we had not heeded this warning? He told some parables. He told the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. Read that. It's instructive. thought they had all time in the world. We don't want to be the ones found sleeping when he returns. At least I don't want to be. I don't think you do either. I don't want to be doing something displeasing to him when he returns. I want to be busy for him so that when he does come, when that day does come, he finds me at my post. Don't you? Well, a warning. One last thing, and just a quick mention on this, and that's the imminence. The imminence. One last thing to remember uh, as we await his return. And I see this in verse number 36. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Lest coming suddenly. And we need to pause here and, 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 and clarify something very, very important. Because we're talking about the second coming of Christ in this passage, obviously. But we need to make sure we understand exactly how it's going to take place. And here's what the Bible says. And I'll just very, very, very briefly mention a couple things. The Bible says that Jesus will first return in the clouds to rapture the church. The word rapture means caught up. And First Thessalonians chapter 4 says that we will be caught up. Jesus will, that's the first aspect of his coming, and uh, he will not actually set foot on the earth at that time. But we who are saved, whether we're alive at the time or whether we've already uh, died and are buried in the ground, are going to be raised uh, to meet him in the air. That, that is the first aspect of his coming, and that is the end of the church age as we know it at that point. Following the rapture, There's going to be a period of intense judgment. It's referred to in the Scripture as the tribulation. Uh, It's going to take place as as nothing has ever been like it or ever will be again. It's going to last for seven years. And then after that seven-year period, Jesus is going to return to 
to the earth, and that's what's oftentimes referred to as his return in power and great glory. And then he's going to set up a kingdom centered in Jerusalem, and he's going to usher in a reign of 1,000 years of peace, referred to as the millennium or the millennial reign, millennial rule of Jesus Christ. Very, very brief overview, and there's much more. There's all kinds of stuff. Eternity, for example, that happens after that. But that's the time frame, and I, and I mentioned that. It's important for us to understand that because what we're talking about here, as is made very, very clear in verse number 26, is that second aspect of that, when Jesus returns in power and great glory. All of those signs that he mentioned have to take place before that. Here's the interesting thing. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible that is mentioned that has to take place before that rapture. And that's the first part. Seven years or so later... It's when he comes in power and great glory. Uh, All kinds of signs can take place in seven years. But for the rapture, nothing could happen at any moment. At any moment. Amen. Let's go. You'd You'd like this sermon to end, wouldn't you? Let's go. It's imminent. Jesus could come today. And so the, here, here's the greatest, the greatest application we can make from anything in Scripture along these prophetical lines is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? That's the question that Jesus would ask as he, as he, as he does this. He says, watch and be ready. You don't know when the time is going to be. It is absolutely imminent. And so he mentioned four things here that we would all do well to remember as the end approaches. He mentioned the authority that he has placed with his people. He mentioned the task that he has given his people, the warning that he has shared with and left with his people, and finally the imminence of his return for his people. Now I'm going to say something that I'm going to say with as much love as I can muster up right here. It's not going to sound like love, but I'm going to say something just as lovingly as I can. You, my friend, are quite simply a fool if you do not prepare for this. And that's as lovingly as I can say it. You're a fool. You say, well, (laughs) preacher. And the thing is, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus is the one who talked about the five foolish virgins. And you need to go and read that parable and see what what he described there of those who uh, just didn't, didn't prepare. And it came upon them suddenly and caught them out. Jesus is the one who told the story of the rich fool who built his life around the obtaining of things in and, 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 and a, and a life like so many of us live today and did not prepare for future things. The rich fool. So I ask you, are you ready, my friend? Have you made sure of your salvation? Have you? Do you know that if that trumpet sounds this day, before this sermon ends, Do you know that you will be with him? Have you been born again? Do you know it? Have you received him as your Savior and your Lord? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you asked and said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Have you done that? I can tell you based on the authority of Scripture, if you're unsure how to answer any of those questions, you are almost certainly not saved. And if you were to die today, it's not heaven that you would see or rather hell. You can get ready today. You can trust Jesus Christ today. We're going to sing in just a moment. 
You can say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be one of the ones who's left behind. I don't want to be one of the ones who, when Jesus Christ comes back in the clouds and calls up his church in the rapture, I don't want to be still standing here. I want to be saved. You can do that today. We're going to sing in just a moment. We would encourage you to step out, come to the front, let somebody show you from the Bible. Nobody's going to embarrass you. We just want to share the scripture with you and pray with you and help you. Are you ready? And what about you, Christian? Are you ready? You may have been saved, but are you at your post? Are you busy for Jesus? Or are you busy about other things? Are you actively working to make disciples for him? Are you doing the task that he's asked you to do? What will he find you doing when the trumpet sounds? Are you ready? It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, 